This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, human enslavement and conditioning, and corruption and mind alteration. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 309. Greetings, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamorph City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 50 of my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Fiona wrestled with the terrible knowledge that releasing her mind block had given her. Fiona was brought into the collective by Victor Hincavos and Egan Hunter, two dangerous men who went on to become powerful operatives in the military's PSYOPs program. Egan placed the blocks on the nine-year-old Fiona's memory after Victor killed her mother in a fit of uncontrolled rage. They made it look like Mother had been killed by a gang of rogue mages who had erased Fiona's memory to cover their tracks, and they had rescued the girl and delivered her to the Hive for protection. For most of her life, Fiona's faith in the Collective has been absolute. Now she is realizing that the Elders have tolerated the presence of killers and psychopaths in their midst, because they were useful weapons, and because the Elders believed they could control them. But now Victor is gone rogue, and he tortured and killed Egan when his old friend was sent to hunt him down. Obviously, the Elder's control was far from perfect. Sasha was indignant that the search for Victor had been called off after Egan's murder, and knowing the truth about what happened to Fiona and her mother makes her even more convinced that their old mentor must be brought to justice. But Fiona begged Sasha not to get involved with trying to hunt Victor down. He's just too dangerous, and Fiona can't bear the thought of losing Sasha to that murderer. She urged Sasha to trust Miriam Bakhtavar, the elder who is spearheading the search for Victor and Abby Preston, the girl he took from Westfall Academy. If anyone in the Hive leadership can be trusted to do the right thing, it's Miriam. But what Fiona doesn't realize is that Miriam has been captured and turned by the Vampire Syndicate, the Collective's greatest enemy. For the last six months, Miriam has been working as a mole inside the Collective, feeding intelligence to her masters in the Syndicate, and sabotaging the Collective's operations against them. Miriam hates Malcolm and Braddock, the brutal lieutenant who sired her, but the magic of the blood bond makes it impossible for her to disobey them 
And since Braddock's first command to Miriam was to forbid her from taking her own life, she has remained trapped in her new undead existence. Miriam has tried to redeem herself by using her new position to rehabilitate Seralina Greyhaven, a broken thrall who was given to her by Malcolm himself. Lena had once been a fiercely intelligent, inspiring, and charismatic businesswoman, with a medical technology startup that was poised to make the world a better place. But she made an enemy of Malcolm, and he set out to make an example of her, crushing her will and turning her into a nearly mindless slave. Over the last six months, Lena has rebounded admirably under Miriam's guidance, becoming a talented and capable administrator of her mistress's new household. Now, Miriam has received a summons to visit Malcolm in person, the first time he has called for her in months. Whatever it is, it's important, and sensitive enough that he doesn't want to risk talking about it in a way that might be intercepted. Miriam called Malcolm's secretary to announce herself, then hurried up to the penthouse. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 50 Malcolm was already seated in his chair when Miriam arrived at the white parlor. He wore his dark red smoking jacket over a set of silk pajamas, which somehow didn't make him look any less dignified than when he wore his three-piece suit. He had the newspaper open on his lap and a snifter of brandy on the coffee table. A lit cigar sat on an elegantly carved holder above an equally elegant ashtray. The scent of smoke was strong in the room, but she could hear the hidden air purifiers working hard to keep up. He looked up from the paper as the secretary ushered her in. Ah, Miriam, excellent. He smiled, and Miriam felt the now familiar melange of loathing, fear, and adoration that the prince always inspired in her. My lord, she said, bowing, please forgive my lateness. I only just now received your message. No matter, Malcolm said easily. As I said, I expected you to return late. Please, have a seat. He gestured to the couch at his left, and Miriam sat as bidden. Malcolm set the paper aside, then took a sip of his brandy and a puff from the cigar before speaking. You're coming along well, Miriam. I admit I had my doubts when you decided to make that cast-off Greyhaven into your seneschal, but by all accounts you've molded her nicely. And you've taken, what, five other thralls after her? Six, my lord. Miriam said. Aaron Parker joined us in October. She suppressed a wince at the memory. Aaron was a senior honor student at Westfall, who worked part-time as Miriam's office assistant. She hadn't wanted to enthrall the girl, but she'd made the mistake of stopping in at the office one night while the hunger was on her. Aaron wasn't scheduled to work that evening, but she had stored her gym bag in the office while she went running in the nearby gardens. Aaron had come back to the office flushed and sweating, and the smell of her had overwhelmed Miriam's self-restraint. 
She'd had enough presence of mind to seduce the girl, rather than taking her blood by force, so at least she had spared her the terror and violation of blood rape. But she had still been forced to bind Aaron to herself to guarantee her silence. Malcolm let out a low whistle. Seven thralls, he said, in a tone of pride and quiet amazement. And they all remain loyal to you? No jealousy or feelings of ill-use that might pollute the sharing? None, sir. They are all very satisfied with their position. All very satisfied, very contented slaves, she thought. Powerless to resist me, and too caught up in their worship of me to try. Great Maker, help me, I understand now. This is the temptation that corrupted the gods themselves. Excellent, Malcolm said. If Miriam's inner turmoil had betrayed itself at all, he gave no sign of it. It's very important to keep them that way, Miriam. A well-tended coterie isn't just a status symbol. It's the key to your survival. I've seen too many vampires driven mad because they allowed resentment or terror to take root in their thralls. Fear sweetens the blood, but the cost of it is too great. The sharing affects you just as much as it affects them. The only way to safely maintain your power over them is to make certain that they see you as God and Master, the giver of all good things. Miriam marveled at how easily he said this as if the act of subjugating another sentient being to one's will had as little moral significance as the pruning of a hedge. This creature has lived so long with power that he no longer questions his right to use it, she thought. The fact that you have been able to maintain such a large coterie at such a young age is proof of your potential, Malcolm continued. You'll go far in the organization, I've no doubt of it. I'm very proud of you. Miriam felt a thrill of pleasure at such lavish praise, and immediately hated herself for it. Thank you, sir. Malcolm took another sip of his brandy, then paused with the snifter in hand. He held it up and watched how the amber liquid caught the light. He frowned, apparently spotting a smudge on the crystal, because he pulled out a handkerchief and started polishing it. I wonder he said in a distracted tone, if you think you might be able to handle a couple of additions to that coterie of yours. Miriam shifted in her seat. Is this why he summoned me? To entrust me with more of his cast-offs? I believe so. It would depend on their personalities, how well they blended with the rest of my house. And how much they have been reduced to soul-dead wreckage. Oh, somehow I doubt that will be a problem here, Malcolm said. You've already demonstrated your capacity to work with them, and quite effectively. He smiled, showing the tips of his fangs. I want the telepaths who took part in the break-in at Viscount. Miriam sat up in alarm. Her body did not respond with a cold chill, but she felt it in her spirit just the same. You... Want them, my lord? Yes, Malcolm said matter-of-factly. Oh, not to kill them, of course. That would be a waste of resources, and I'm not in the habit of being wasteful. No, I want them under your control and answerable to me. His eyes and voice hardened just a little. 
Their raid has cost me face in my dealings with the other princes. An affront like that cannot be allowed to go unanswered. If I can parade them before the Queen's court, a pair of domesticated telepaths bound to a member of my house, then that will make up for everything I have lost and more. I understand, my lord. Miriam swallowed once, her throat feeling suddenly dry. Will you need me to bring in the runner, Callie Linder, as well? Malcolm looked surprised. What? No, no, he said, chuckling. Miss Linder was just doing her job. The kind of daring she displayed deserves to be rewarded. No, Miriam, my organization needs the runners as much as anyone else. I will not become known as a man who would launch vendettas on the hired help. Miriam nodded once. I understand, sir. Good. Malcolm pursed his lips, clearly thinking. How is the Hive coming along in decrypting the files they stole from us? Slowly, but they are making progress, Miriam admitted. I have managed to keep most of the information contained here in Metamore, ostensibly for security reasons. Their inability to draw on the other hives for help has slowed them down, but I expect a breakthrough soon, in spite of my efforts to contain it. Understandable. Still, the leader of that decryption project, Brian Summers, I believe you said his name was? He was one of the agents on the ground in the Viscount operation, yes? Yes, my lord. And the other? Fiona Hinconnell, my lord. Brian's wife. Only one of them, but I'm not going to volunteer that. Malcolm's predatory smile returned. Excellent. Then we shall redeem our reputation in the Queen's court and hinder our enemies in a single stroke. He rose to his feet in front of her, setting aside the cigar and sniffed her. Kneel, Miriam. Miriam did so quickly, her body trembling in anticipation. Malcolm bared his arm and brought out his letter opener. She was expecting another small incision on the palm, a token blood gift, a brief moment of ecstasy to reward her for her faithful service. Her eyes widened when he instead used the blade to open a vein in his wrist. Blood oozed forth and quickly began filling his palm. I bestow this gift on you to empower you to fulfill my commands, he said. Drink, child. She did so eagerly, taking his hand in hers and sucking up the blood with her lips. Ecstasy exploded across her senses as raw power filled her undead body, supercharging her already formidable abilities. She felt Malcolm's mind enfolding hers, imposing his will upon her, and she felt herself submitting to that will and embracing her position of service within the hierarchy. Part of her still despised him, still hated herself and her servile fawning before this man who is not a man. But above those thoughts was the same sense of rightness that she felt when Lena submitted to her. That warm, contented feeling flooded through her as she accepted the gift of her master's blood, telling her that this was where she belonged, the purpose for which she existed. The hierarchy of blood was more than a chain of command. It was the foundation of life itself, binding everyone it touched into proper, orderly relationships of master and servant. 
Her reservations and objections faded into insignificance before that one crucial fact. Why should Malcolm question his right to rule? The power in his blood silenced any doubts she might have had. He was the master, and her only regret was that all mortals could not find the purpose and pleasure of service to him. The vein closed of its own volition, stopping the flow of blood. Miriam licked up the last traces of it before raising her eyes to gaze on the master. He ran his hand through her hair fondly, as the last vestiges of the blood ecstasy shuddered through her. "'Go now, my pet,' he said. "'Capture Brian Summers and Fiona Hinconnell. Break their resistance. Bind them to your will. And when you have succeeded, when they will worship at your feet and beg to give you their blood, then bring them to me, and I will make a spectacle of them before my rivals.' He smiled. Give me this, and that will be all the vengeance I desire. Victor knew something was wrong the moment he entered the apartment. His telepathy was only of average strength, and he wasn't very skilled at picking out individual mental signatures from the mass of humanity, but he had always been able to recognize Abby. Her mind stood out like a searchlight amid the fainter constellations of the minds around her, arresting in its beauty and impossible to ignore. And as his perceptions extended to the apartment's outer walls, he knew immediately that she was not here. Sudden fear rose up in him. Was she unconscious? Or worse, dead? Has something happened to my child? Pushing back the urge to panic, Victor swept through the entire flat, touching nothing, opening the doors ahead of him with his telekinesis. There was no body. His next thought was that she might have been kidnapped, but there was no sign of a struggle, either. If someone had taken her, they had covered up any trace of it. Possible, but unlikely. Besides, Abby was powerful enough that it was unlikely she could be taken anywhere against her will. The fear began to subside then, giving way to anger. He went back through the apartment again, searching methodically. Not much was out of place, but Victor noticed that a few of Abby's favorite shirts were missing, as were her purse and one of their smaller overnight bags. It was that last bit of information that clinched it. If she had just needed to run out to a store for something, she wouldn't have taken the overnight bag. If the Hive had found her and she had gone willingly, they probably would have taken more. All the evidence led to one conclusion. Abby had betrayed him. He had promised her, promised her, that he would find her a telepathic doctor. She had agreed to give him time to do it. And then she had broken faith with him, probably the instant he left. She had taken his child and run away from him back to the elders. No, he growled, as the anger bubbled over into blinding rage. No! The room grew hazy then, as it sometimes did when the fury was on him. He felt the odd floating sensation as he slipped away into the other place, the dark place inside himself where he retreated when the stress became too great. He was vaguely aware that he was still moving, 
acting, doing something. His sense of time was distorted in the dark place. When he returned to himself, he was unsure whether it had been only seconds, or minutes, or hours. The apartment looked like it had been struck by a tornado. Shattered glasses and plates mingled on the floor with the splintered remains of kitchen chairs. Knives and forks had embedded themselves in the walls. The bedside lamp was a ruin of broken ceramic and twisted metal. Victor himself knelt in the eye of the storm, untouched by the carnage around him. He usually felt better after returning from the dark place, but this time it had only made him a little tired. He could still feel the cold, sickening pain of betrayal, like a knife twisting in his gut. He rose to his feet and reached out with his teak, sifting through the wreckage until he found a few of Abby's clothes. They flew to his hand, and he jammed them into a pocket of his coat. It took a while longer to find his little black book of contacts. He knew a few unlicensed mages who specialized in divination. He'd find the closest one and persuade him to do a locator spell to find Abby. And if the first one couldn't be persuaded, his body would persuade the next one. Fiona had finished her dinner and was nursing a cup of coffee when her business phone rang. Brian looked up at her curiously. Expecting anyone? Shaking her head, she crossed to the kitchen counter and retrieved the phone. Hin Connell here. Fiona, this is Miriam. Fiona felt her eyebrows go up. Elder Bakhtivar, how can I help you? At the table, Rebecca and Brian immediately sat up a bit straighter. Fiona moved closer and pressed the speaker button so they could hear Miriam's voice. We've had a breakthrough, the elder said. The girl Victor abducted has been found. Fiona felt something ease inside her chest, a tension she hadn't known she was carrying. An honest smile spread over her face. That is excellent news, elder. She paused. Any word on Victor? No, and that's why we're keeping it quiet. Right now we have the girl hidden in a remote location. The only people who know about it are you and my own agents. But as soon as he discovers that she's missing, Victor is going to come looking for her. We could keep her hidden from scrying for a little while, but not indefinitely. Fiona nodded. You intend to set a trap for him. Precisely. It will be easy for a man with Victor's resources to obtain a locator spell to find Abby, but it won't tell him who else is with her. Miriam's voice hardened. As long as he lives, Victor will be a threat to the Collective. I intend to force a confrontation on our terms. Victor's temper is his weak point. It makes him rash, foolish. Fiona heard an edge of cold pleasure seep into the Elder's voice. I want you and Brian there with me to take advantage of that. Fiona looked over at Brian. His eyes were distant, and the tightness in them bore witness to his conflicted emotions. We need to discuss this as a family, Elder Bakhtivar, Fiona said. May I return your call when we have made a decision? Of course, child, Miriam said. But please call back as soon as you can. I don't know how long we have before Victor discovers that Abby is missing, 
and there is no one in this hive better suited to stopping him. Fiona thought that was probably hyperbole, but she let it pass without comment. There was certainly no one more motivated to stop Victor, given what he had done to Dell and Trace. And my mother, Fiona thought, with a sudden stab of grief and anger, though she was sure that Miriam was unaware of that particular connection. Sasha is working late tonight, but I can reach her by phone, she said. Brian and Rebecca are here. We should have a decision presently. Very good. Thank you, Fiona. Fiona rang off, then set the phone on the table. She returned to her seat and looked at Brian and Rebecca in turn. I think you should help her, Becca said seriously. The Elder's right. We need to catch Victor before anyone else gets hurt. Fiona looked at her sharply. Is that a precognitive statement? Becca shook her head vigorously. Uh-uh. I only asked Victor once, and you saw what happened. I'm never trying that again. Fiona suppressed a wince. The memory of the nightmarish painting was all too vivid in her mind. Do you think you could ask Babby? Brian asked. Maybe you could get a sense of what's going to happen to her. I can try. Rebecca's eyes went distant, then glowed yellow as she tapped into her power. She remained frozen for twenty-three seconds, Fiona counted, and then came out of the trance. It's all fuzzy, she said, sounding frustrated. She's definitely on the run from Victor, and he's definitely coming after her, but what happens after that could go a lot of different ways. She shook her head. Sorry, guys, but most of this depends on people making decisions that they haven't made yet. Beyond that, it's all a jumble. It's all right. Brian took her hand and gave it a comforting squeeze. At least that tells us that we have a chance to help choose what happens. Fiona looked at him closely. His expression was still troubled, but she could see him slipping into his role as the military man, taking up the burden of leadership once more. What is your assessment, Captain? Calling Brian by his rank pushed him a little further in the transition from family man to warrior, as she had known it would. Elder Bakhtivar won't be able to keep Abby's recovery hidden for long. She's right. This is the best opportunity we'll have to go after Victor. He looked over at Rebecca. My biggest concern is guarding the home front. I don't like the idea of leaving you and the baby home alone. Rebecca shrugged uncomfortably. Thanks, but I think this is bigger than us. She gave him a half-hearted smile. And hey, if the trap works, Victor won't know we're involved until it's too late. It is a calculated risk, Fiona admitted, but we stand a better chance of success if we bring all our forces to bear at once. She looked up at Brian, and for a moment she allowed him to see the pain she carried inside her. And on a personal level, I need to be involved in this. Brian closed his eyes and nodded. I know. He was silent a moment, then let out a long, heavy sigh. I didn't want to see our family pulled into this fight, but you've been in it longer than any of us realized longer than Abby, even. When he looked up at her, Fiona could see the decision in his eyes. Victor is going to pay for what he did to your mother. 
We still need to get Sasha's blessing, but if she agrees, we're in. Fiona placed her hand over Brian's and squeezed it once, lightly. He read the thanks in her eyes without her having to say a word. She reached for the phone. Miriam's phone rang less than twenty minutes after she hung up. She glanced at the caller ID, then answered. Fiona? Elder Bakhtivar, Fiona said, by way of greeting. I just spoke to Sasha. She has some reservations about the plan, but she has agreed to trust your judgment. We are with you. Miriam closed her eyes. Excellent, she said, keeping her voice clear and steady. Meet me in one hour at the Hutchins Tower subway terminal. From there I shall take you to the place where the child is being kept. Understood, Fiona said. Any other instructions, Elder? Miriam hesitated, thinking about all the things she wished she could say but couldn't. Come prepared for a fight, she said at last. We don't know what resources Victor has acquired. Be prepared for anything. Anything, Fiona. There was a brief silence at the other end of the line. Yes, Fiona said at last, her voice serious and distant. Of course, Elder. In one hour, then. One hour, Miriam agreed. The phone went silent. Miriam set it down and stared at it. The ecstasy of Malcolm's blood gift had been short-lived. She could still feel the power he'd instilled in her, the magic in his undead blood ironically making her feel more alive. But within a few hours, her manic feelings of devotion to him had faded, leaving her in a more rational and altogether more depressing state of mind. As much as she had adapted to her existence in between, Malcolm's order to capture and bind Fiona and Brian had reminded her of the horror of her situation. The prince had asked little of her these last few months, and Braddock's interest in her seemed limited to using her as a trophy and occasional sex toy. That was tedious and sometimes painful, but at least it affected only Miriam herself. Now, though, Malcolm had lulled the hive into a false sense of security, and he had given Miriam the first orders that would directly harm her people. And Miriam, for all that she hated him, was powerless to refuse. Still, she was not ready to give up hope entirely. Malcolm's orders had been explicit, but he had overlooked a handful of details. Tiny ones, to be sure, but there they were, just the same. She spared no hope for herself. She was well and truly damned, and nothing she could do now would allow her to escape it. But she believed that there might be a chance— just the barest chance, that Fiona and Brian could be saved, and perhaps Lena and the other thralls as well. She got to her feet and went to find Lena. She had orders to give, instructions that her seneschal would need to follow if her mission should fail. Please, great maker, grant me that much, she prayed. I have failed so many people already. Let me do the same for Malcolm." Blessed goddess, let me fail again. Just one last time.
And that's the end of chapter 50. Come back next time when Danny gets an unexpected visit from Abby Preston. Garth Nix said, For all my longer works, i.e. the novels, I write chapter outlines so I can have the pleasure of departing from them later on. Boy, I feel ya on that one, Garth. So let's see what didn't go to plan this week. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of October 23rd through October 29th. I wrote 1,269 words this week, over the course of 1.5 hours, for an average writing speed of 846 words per hour. I wrote on two out of seven days this week. After getting back to fiction writing last week, this week I stalled again. I tried to finish two episodes of the podcast over the weekend, but I wasn't able to complete the editing on the second one. I had some bad luck with Audacity on Friday and Saturday, and I ended up corrupting the project file not once, but twice, which meant that I spent a lot of time redoing work that had been lost. Fortunately, I figured out why it was happening and was able to fix it, so hopefully that won't happen to me again. I ended up working on audio on four days this week. For the rest of the week, I spent some time adding content to the L.C. Williams website, working on scripts for the podcast, and trying to design the cover for the omnibus edition of the Honor Bound trilogy. I commissioned some fantastic artwork from Bad Moon Studio, a wraparound cover piece that shows Honor, Natasha, and Alex superimposed over an aerial shot of the city. But now I need to turn that artwork into an actual cover. I spent an evening trying to figure out how to do what I wanted to do in the new version of Photoshop, but it's clear that my skills on this are a bit rusty. If you want to see the new cover art, you can see some parts of it at the Fans of Metamore City Facebook page and at authorlcwilliams.com. The full version is available to the patrons of my Patreon campaign. It's visible to all patrons at the $3 level and up. Just go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, choose the donation tier that's right for you, and you can unlock the post where I've shared the artwork. Quick and easy, and it helps me keep this show going. If you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. I couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, Send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. 
The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.